It's September 29th, 2019, and this is episode 414 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. Today we're back in Colorado for part two of our recent live show. I'm joined again by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Jonathan Mohan for an hour of questions and answers with a great studio audience. Enjoy the show. All right. Cool. Uh, by the way, a uh, mad shout out to uh, Davi. If you don't know, uh, the uh, logo that I use for my brand was designed by Davi Barker. Thank you. Yeah, so if you'd like uh, elegant, clean, and very humbling, I would definitely go with Davi. <laughs> Let's talk bits. Oh, in five years, it's going to get much more humbling as more of it falls out. <laughs> right, so for our third segment of the show, we have a lot of audience questions. So first of all, I want to thank everybody for participating. This is awesome. And I'm starting to see some themes emerging in the questions that we're getting. We have gotten a lot of questions that are centered around Bitcoin and crypto privacy. So I definitely want to talk about that, privacy and surveillance. Also, we've gotten a lot of questions about Libra and about mass adoption of cryptocurrencies. So let's have at it. I would like to start with uh, the, the surveillance question. Um, if Bitcoin or crypto is going to give power back to the people, how can we help sanctioned countries like Iran, North Korea, et cetera, get access to this freedom? Well, this is where things, I think, get really interesting. And I've had this discussion a couple of times with people um, around the privacy talks that happens at this conference. And there's this very bleak view that as the fungibility of crypto becomes eroded through blacklisting and uh, uh, chain analytic surveillance companies, that eventually it becomes very difficult for you to trade on an exchange or participate in the legitimate economy with all of these you know, miraculous uh, savior investors who are coming to make us mainstream. Um, but the funny thing is that, on the other hand, for the people who live in countries where they have problematic governments, problematic banks, fungibility doesn't mean a thing. They they literally do not care about whether Coinbase has blacklisted a coin. Like you try to sell that same coin in Argentina uh, in an OTC market, cash market on the street, no one is going to give a damn if you can't sell it on Coinbase. So those economies work really, really well, even with tainted uh, Bitcoin. Uh, maybe it turns out that it is about the other six billion. Anyone else have a comment on this one? Yeah, the, so the question again was, um, if cryptocurrency is a technology that brings freedom, what do we do about people who are kind of cut off from the internet, like our North Korea or Iran, well, so there, countries? Again, it depends on how subversive you want to be and how disruptive you're willing to be. Very. Because there are, uh, <laughs> because there are um, you know, limitations as U.S. citizens on what we can do legally without sort of uh, putting ourselves in danger. So I would just recommend that. Um, I think that in places that don't have sanctions but that do have these problems, there was a question asked during the prior segment that I think is relevant. And as Jonathan said, you know, you look at these places that are hyperinflating, and I actually think that that is one of the more important uses that Bitcoin can have. Is what Jonathan said is very real. I did a project, I guess, about 18 months ago at this point, where I worked with uh, probably about 15 people in Venezuela, and I basically had them doing very low-level audio editing for me, basically removing breathing sounds. 
um, from our, because I'm a total <laughs> ridiculous person about not having any breathing sounds. Can I help stimulate the economy of Venezuela? <sighs> right. <laughs> so breathing life into the Venezuelan So it was economy. interesting because Bitcoin was a really good way to work with them and it allowed me basically to bootstrap a project that if I was working with people in the developed world would have been far too expensive to even really try. And it was cheap enough working with them while still providing basically 10 times what it was possible to earn locally that I was able to you know, create a very interesting business model that I still haven't been able to launch because I'm still going through the process of developing the application and stuff like that. But um, it was real and like of the people who we worked with, like four of them used the money to get out of Venezuela. And it only took like four weeks of working, you know, on this project to do that. So I found that I actually had a problem churning through people because they would earn enough money to leave and then, and then it wouldn't be worth it to do it to them because the new scale of value. It is a good problem to have, but that so, was like... That so was an amount of money that would be illegal to pay a 19-year-old from the donations that a nonprofit podcast makes was enough to liber literally change the lives. There's a difference between nonprofit and losing money. Just Sorry, non-revenue <laughs> positive <laughs> entity. Here's another um, related question. So with chain analysis spying becoming more sophisticated and emerging AI and deep learning capabilities, how can we prevent crypto from becoming an enslaving technology? So I, um, I know the, the chain analysis guys because they're in New York. And last year I walked up to one of them because I hadn't seen him in a while said, you know, like a lot of my friends really don't like you guys. And, you know, some of them really, really dislike you. And some of them say, you guys are fascists and you're Nazis. And what you're doing is just going to round up a bunch of people and do really horrible things to them. And I told them, like, you know, I just want to say it's really unfair that they say that because it's a totally unfair analogy. You're chain analysis. You're not doing anything wrong. You're not the Nazis. You're just the factory that made the Zyklon V. <laughs> <laughs> and he What's said, wow. Oh, that's the gas chamber gas. <laughs> right, no, 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 no. It's a pesticide. It's just a pesticide. So, oh, right. Yeah, it's well, just a IBM, simple pesticide. They just had one large account. IBM was uh, instrumental in building the systems, not really like computers. Are we going down the rabbit hole again? <laughs> <laughs> Follow your bliss. This, this conversation is going Godwin a lot. <laughs> so, chain analysis. Yeah. Um, the problem is there's always going to be bottlenecks, and wherever there's bottlenecks for roadmaps uh, on and off the entire ecosystem, you're going to have a chain analysis because the old world doesn't let you. The single thing it'll never let you have is privacy, and and you know I don't I don't see a scenario where we still have humans in the old world where we don't have the chain analysis problem. So the well, answer to that is get everyone up in the air as quickly as possible and keep everyone up in the air for as long as possible. I think uh, one of the ways we fix issues of privacy is by using the asymmetry inherent in all societies, which is generally the number of people being watched is much larger than the watchers. And uh, the panopticon works both ways. If you, uh, if you surveil people, they can surveil you back. Interestingly enough, uh, they can stop that in many scenarios, but uh, blockchains give you a really important thing, which is immutability. So, um, for example, the next set of leaks of uh, Panama Papers or the, the diplomatic wires, etc., what you do is you embed them in a blockchain so they cannot be erased from history. Um, you can do the same thing with other surveillance technologies. So, if you want to uh, make... Uh, if you want to create a situation where, where society moves towards actually protecting privacy and making it stronger, what you do is you strip the powerful people in society of their privacy, and suddenly they care. 
for example, let's take uh, facial recognition technology. My perfect solution for getting facial recognition technology um, fixed is a decentralized autonomous organization that stores the faces of every cop, judge, federal official in the country on Ethereum and allows anyone with a smartphone to tag them and track them everywhere they go. You want facial recognition banned? Get their faces into facial recognition and watch how fast it gets banned. By the way, that, that was one you of the... You want financial surveillance banned? Get all of the KYC AML info of every powerful person leaked onto blockchain so they have nowhere to hide. Privacy has to be a valuable thing. And right now what's happened, and we were talking about this the other day, is privacy has become commodified so that only the rich can afford privacy. Like many rights, there's now a price to be able to afford a right. Uh, and any, all of the rights, but especially privacy. So if you have the means to create shell companies in order to buy a house, you can have privacy in where your residence is. If you have the means to use burner phones, or if you have the means to travel a lot, you can have a lot of privacy. You can afford it. Gated communities, private islands, etc., etc. You can buy privacy, right? So the only way to stop that commodification is to strip the possibility of buying privacy. And once you do that, if everybody loses their privacy, then it's a very, very, very valuable commodity. So the argument here is we have to light it on fire before anybody's going to care about water. Um, for for the very, very specific and narrow uh, edge of the pyramid at the top, mm -hmm that gets to run the panopticon. You just flip it around. In French, they call this surveillance, which uh, the opposite of surveillance, which is looking from below. Right? Now, if you think about the asymmetry of that kind of situation, there's probably, you know, in the U.S., you're talking about 400 million people in the population, and there's 400,000 people who, who get to exempt themselves from surveillance and control things. If you flip it around, if you have 400 million people watching 400,000, they lose every single time, because there's more of us. I like the idea of sort of like spam encryption, like just putting a lot of stuff out there to like obscure data, and also just putting disinformation or you know, silly stuff, spoof stuff out there when you can. But everybody has to do that. For it to be effective, you have to have a lot of people participating, where um, the inverse panopticon is something that one rogue, very, very uh, disruptive rebel could do on their own in a weekend in solidity, I hope. All right. Well, um... <laughs> Anyone inspired? <laughs> I'm calling it cop face. I think it's about a 20-year rap sheet. Face chain. Face All right. Uh, let's see. Um, what do you think about Congress trying to regu regulate Libra, but accepting the fact that Bitcoin can't be regulated? Did they make Bitcoin legit by doing this, and was that good? Uh, so, um, just because I know Andreas is going to explode if we talk about Libra for more than five more minutes. Um, the big difference between um, Facebook and Bitcoin is Congress, um, they're so author authoritarian that they, they only can think in companies. They can only think in people. So when it comes to a blockchain, it's, so, it's, it's, sort, of like, um, it's sort of like they can't even see it. 
there's this there's this anime called Psychopaths. It's whatever, but it, the, the surveillance state monitors your psychology, and by the time you get to, uh, a bad mindset, they arrest you for having a bad mindset. And there are certain people who just have a weird brain, and the system literally can't even see them. And when it comes to Bitcoin as a way for social people to work with one another, it's this structure that they can't see as a person, but they can't see as a corporation, and so they just see it as invisible. Right, that's a perceptual mirage or perceptual blindness. Um, there's actually a documented study of um, various uncontacted tribes and Aboriginal people who, when they see uh, ships arriving on the horizon, um, or when they have ships arriving on the horizon with colonists, they can't actually see the ships because their their brain perceptually can't has never seen an object like that of that size on the horizon in the middle of the ocean, and they can't even perceive it because it's inconceivable. Bitcoin is a bit like that. It's the thing that's never been seen, can't be understood, and it creates this blind spot, almost like the little black dots you have in the center of your vision. And so, to the authoritarian, everything is authoritarian. And so, right. the idea that Bitcoin can exist, but no one's in charge of it, is a self-detonating concept to them. So, what they said was, any companies on Bitcoin, we're going to regulate. But Bitcoin is invisible. So, the thing that's different about Libra is, it's a company. Like, it's a thing. It's distinct. The authoritarian says, no, this is the Facebook coin. It's not the companies on this coin, including Facebook, need to be regulated. It's Facebook needs to be regulated. And with Bitcoin, they said Bitcoin doesn't need to be regulated because Bitcoin's invisible to them, but companies on Bitcoin need to be regulated. You remember when well, there was talk about regulating the Bitcoin Association? You remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> Back in 2013, I think, there was some talk about that in Congress. We need to get Bitcoin Association in here to talk to them about this. People were confused about what that was. Well, it's a new thing. And I, I think that's a problem that we run into over and over again, not just in this space, but in general, is that it's really, really hard to conceptualize something that we've never conceptualized before. And it's also really hard to appreciate the values of something when you don't properly understand the problems with the kind of status quo. And, and I, that I think that's why, like, in the beginning, there were so many libertarians involved. Because the concept of social order while everyone is equal is just the way that that kind of crazy thinks the world should be. <laughs> and it's just the world they live in. So like that like inversion of concepts that you can't even conceive was just perfectly natural to them. And, and because of that, there's this magic bubble that the rest of the world just can't pop. Would any of you accept an invitation to go to a university in Iran, Venezuela, or Syria to speak about Bitcoin, all expenses paid? Uh, I've received invitations to all three, and I, I've had to decline, unfortunately. Um, one, it's, it's physically dangerous, obviously. I mean, Syria, obviously. Um, Iran is perfectly safe for me to go there from the Iranians. The, the dangerous part there is the U.S. government when you come back. Mm -hmm. So if I want every single business trip and tourist trip I do from then on to be accompanied by the welcome back to the United States, sir, <laughs> bend over. Um, I'm, I'm not traveling under those circumstances. I'm going to be singled out for special screening for the rest of my life. Now. I know that's a cowardly position to take, but the bottom line is, from a practical perspective, it makes it impossible for me to do my job if from that moment on I can never use that passport that has that stamp in there. Uh, it also means, and it's not just the U.S., it's a whole host of countries. Um, 
you know, but it's not just those countries. There's, there's lots of other countries that cause similar problems. Soon it may be difficult for Westerners to travel to China, for example, if we keep going down this road. So, yeah, um, it's a hard one. I wish I could say I would go. Can't. Will the first spendable cryptocurrency wallet be a standalone product or an integration into existing super ubiquitous software? Well, I'll take that one. I mean, the, every cur cryptocurrency wallet yeah. is spendable, right? But I'm maybe not sure they what mean that like means. spendable yeah, yeah. doesn't mean receivable, and I think oh. they mean in a real world scenario when you want to buy something, you can actually spend it there. Huh. That's how I'm going to perceive what he means by that, or she okay. means by that. Sure. So, will it be a standalone product, or is it going to be integrated into some super ubiquitous software, like mm -hmm, maybe what we were just talking about, mm -hmm. Libra? Well, I. I actually think that we're going to see a lot more browser integration. Eventually, I expect cryptocurrency wallets to be a standard part of the HTTP protocol. Uh, in fact, there's there's a payment code uh, mechanism inside HTTP because they anticipate payments as part of the HTTP protocol. It would be great to just have that stuff be native to the web rather than a bolt-on application. But then again, I remember when most of the things that you do in a web browser today were bolt-on applications. Uh, so, you know, do you remember Flash? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, I think that the most likely scenario for us to get meaningful adoption is going to come from integration into um, other applications. And I think that we're already starting to see that. We've heard it talked about a good deal with kind of the Starbucks side of things. And I actually think that it's not going to be Bitcoin that will catch on. I think it will be a local tokenization scheme. So, the Chipotle app, for example, will reward you when you purchase from Chipotle. They already do it. It's just not a token at this point. Um, so I, I, I've, I've held this belief since, I guess, 2015 um, and didn't really say it in public that much, but I guess I'll say it now because why not say stupid things that are recorded and put online? Um, but I genuinely believe that the single greatest thing that will happen to Bitcoin is if Donald Trump does his craziness with the rounding up and the closing and the you can't send money to Mexico. Because imagine if we had 15 million people in America that needed to remit billions of dollars <laughs> and then the only way to do it is bitcoin and overnight we get 15 million americans sending money to latin america using bitcoin and it would propagate all of latin america onto bitcoin and so if you're like what what would it take in order to get mass adoption what would it take to make bitcoin spendable and actually achieve that moment i think we need some sort of massive shift in disenfranchisement to people who were traditionally banked. I don't. I think that what it takes to get mainstream is the, the, the reverse problem, and it's not the one I wish on any community, but it's not let's lift up the unbanked. It's let's find a group of 20 or 30 million who are banked that are about to be unbanked and then save them with Bitcoin. And that's going to be the moment where it gets adopted and we get that massive spendable moment. I have a more fun suggestion, which is that when we talk about spendable Bitcoin, I think a lot of people think about again and again and again buying a cup of coffee. And I, I really regret that the first example in Mastering Bitcoin is buying a cup of coffee um, be because it, it, it created this enduring, well, I mean, it was already an enduring myth. In, in places like North America, where most of our fundamental financial institutions kind of work and the currency works and, and people are, for the most part, banked, I think the, the real spendability and use of digital currencies is for buying digital artifacts that are delivered virtually online things. and That means content, 
So buying articles, videos, views, whatever, and even more importantly, microtransactions in games where we have an enormous entertainment industry. So for me, a spendable Bitcoin is something that is uh, embedded in a game world and creates the kind of applications that you can't do with fiat because there, none of those payment systems can really handle uh, that kind of latency and, and uh, spendability. And it creates a niche application for a niche community like gamers. And so yes, it will be in your browser, and it will be a spendable uh, wallet. But it will be—it won't be for coffee. It will be to buy the Shield of Gondor in one game, and then sell it for a Pokemon in another. So uh, on the subject of games, you know, I, there's always kind of been this excitement around tokens and games. And I just want to turn the conversation to tokens for a minute. Um, for a long time, I thought that games were really the, the place to do it because you could tokenize these digital items like uh, Andreas was talking about. And it was kind of over time that I came to realize that the way that that industry is set up right now doesn't really lend itself well to that sort of a solution at all because you kind of have this monopolistic presence with Steam. But what's happened in the last six months or so is that sort of the overwhelming um, uh, success of the game Fortnite has put this company called Epic, which used to create a game, uh, you know, created games called Unreal Tournament, and lots of other games in the early days, um, in a position where they had so much money that they decided to leverage their uh, game platform and game launcher into a game store and compete with Steam. And the way that they did that is they've been deploying a lot of money, basically securing exclusives. And what's been happening is that it's been really pissing off the gamer community who primarily would like to buy games and use them wherever they want to buy games and use them and don't really like the idea of exclusivity. But to break into the market, it's really, really hard for Epic because Steam's been building this uh, reputation in libraries. And I mean, Jonathan, how many games do you have on Steam? Oh, geez, 200, I guess. 200? Okay, yeah. yeah. So, you know, like, and I actually have 500, so I thought you had more than me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. I, so anyways, my point just broadly is that tokenization is really hard to deliver into these areas because, um, because the people who are being disrupted by it don't really benefit from it. But when you have an, in, uh, an incumbent like Steam and a runner-up like, uh, like Epic, then the math is very different. And instead of making the attack that Epic is making, which is going after exclusivity, instead they could say to Steam, why do you get to control who owns games? Why don't we create a common layer and let people buy games and they can use them on whichever of our but platforms I, I, and, like and neither one is going to agree to do that because right now we're in the phase that I was de uh, describing earlier where that marketplace is now solidifying into a power law distribution with a few dominant players. It will actually be after those two or three players really dominate that industry when the only way to dislodge them is by changing the parameters of the market completely. And that form of disruption could come from tokenization. Mm -hmm. from, and and the, the nice thing about games and driving adoption of tokens is you can create exactly the kind of circumstances where people become obsessed with things like collectibles and they will do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. So one other point on the gaming side. Um, so I, I don't know if we ever talked about this on the show, but there was, um, so the creator of Magic the Gathering went on to create a game uh, with Steam called Artifact, which was the closest thing that I have ever seen to a large-scale deployment of a tokenized gaming system. And it did not use tokens in that they were, you couldn't pull it into a wallet, but they had a marketplace where you could trade with other people and where, you know, some cards were worth $20 and some cards were worth 10 cents, and the majority of cards were worth maybe 10 cents. So as a way to, and compared to the way that it works where you buy a booster pack and then you open the booster pack and you're looking for a specific card, but you get random cards, 
it presented a really, really interesting, much cheaper way forward, and people hated it. They just hated it. It was ridiculous how much they hated it because it felt stingy. And it felt stingy because since everything had a value, everything had a value. And it was weird because it was actually much cheaper in reality, but the way that we perceive it was so different than anything we'd seen before that people didn't know how to react, and it failed like crazy. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's like one of the least popular games that they've ever launched. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know about that. And, uh, actually, Steam also has some really interesting history when it comes to understanding why these systems need to be decentralized. So uh, I think it was, um, oh, geez, I think it was 2016. Um, Steam got in trouble with, I think it was the mm. state of Kentucky or something like that, because Steam has uh, skins that you can buy and sell. So you had these assets, these tokenized assets that you can buy and sell. And they had the server that they managed because it's a centralized server, but you had the rights to these tokens that you could transfer and sell. Um, and people were using them indiscriminately. And what is it? it was an open API. And what happened was 12-year-olds were using their CSGO skins that had a market value to collateralize them into online poker for dollars so that they could gamble on poker online to the tune of literally millions of dollars of uh, volume. And so the state of Kentucky was like, hey, could you stop 12-year-olds gambling in poker tournaments using Wait, wait, Steam? wait, wait. The state of Kentucky. It was, I think it was Kentucky. It was one of those with a K. I can't remember. Wait, isn't that where they do the Kentucky Derby? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. So it's state monopoly again. Well, I mean, why, why else like, can you buy a lottery ticket that goes to the public schools? Well, let's, let's be real. When you start talking about decentralized systems, the ability to dif discriminate between the 12-year-old and the non-12-year-old no, no, is I'm just not, as critical, I'm, I'm, but harder. I'm not talking about my freedom. In the derby. <laughs> I'm not talking about the age of the kids here, but what I'm saying is that the reason why Steam got in trouble for it was because all of the title rights to the tokens that represented value were custodied on a Steam server. So they said, look, it's this peer-to-peer -peer market. It's an open API. These assets are in this marketplace and this, this, and that. And they go, yeah. And where do those reside? Right. Yeah, and they go, in our servers. Responsibility. Right. And they so go, if it okay. was on a blockchain, it wouldn't have been a problem. If, if, well, if Steam didn't custody those assets, then Steam wouldn't have been the actor liable for what happened with those assets. And have so to track down the twelve-year-olds directly. It's the best way to do it. Right. Uh, throw the throw that grandma in jail. Shoot a new better. <laughs> We're gonna move to the it's next. The way question. they handle piracy, guys. <laughs> Describe a world based on money that gains value. Do people retire earlier? Do work weeks shrink? Do workers have more leverage? Are there still mortgages? Um, everything stays the same, and we all pretend like nothing got better. Every time human expansion in value, ability, wealth increases, human demand and, um, and entitlement correspondingly grows. And so there's this perpetual increase in human experience that's ever getting better. And this perception, because we get more and more entitled, that nothing has changed. And I think we're going to create a world that's 10 times better and 10 times more entitled, and it's going to feel just the same. <laughs> hmm. I, I disagree in, entirely. I think one of the models we can look at in terms of understanding what deflationary currencies do is the university endowment system um, or your average trust fund kid. Right, so uh, trust funds and endowments effectively work uh, pretty much the same way. You have an asset base that has 
uh, regular returns, right? It has yield in the form of dividends or monthly payments, cash generation, basically. And this can be some kind of diversified portfolio. It can be ownership of land, whatever it is. What these do then is they develop, they deliver a steady stream of cash as long as you don't erode the principle that allows you to have a basis for funding future activities. Uh, which in the case of universities is increasing education, in the case of trust fund kids is snorting coke. And so as a result, um, what these things do is they give us a model of what happens to family wealth across generations or family wealth within generations as we start thinking about hard money. Now imagine if what happens is in today's money you buy what you can afford in crypto and then through deflation, the amount of crypto that you sell every year is an ever-shrinking uh, fraction that gives you the same value, right? but it's smaller and smaller over time because the, the value of each unit increases, so that you're eroding your principal less and less and less, and effectively you've created a trust fund. It's one of the reasons why Bitcoin-based charities uh, grew, and you know, even, honestly, uh, and even C4, as an organization, the, the Cryptocurrency Certification Consortium, we get, we get paid to do CBPs um, in, in Bitcoin. And if we don't spend that and it increases in value, that funds much bigger activities in the future. So it, that kind of non-profit behavior, which is endowment-based, is a very natural model. So I think what you see is that happening on a family-by-family-by-family -family -family basis with sound money. For me, I think it changes things in terms of debt and how people think about debt. Because when it doesn't make sense to uh, take out a debt, kind of like a mortgage, like the question asker mentioned, when it doesn't make sense to take that out because you're going to be paying it back in the future with money that's actually worth more, then it changes people's behavior, right? They're, they're more right. like, likely to pay cash for things now rather than take out the debt. Yeah, and it's interesting because that's come out in the terminology that's used to describe that behavior, right? So within the community, we call that hodling. Uh, outside the community, they call it hoarding, right? And hoarding in, has a really negative connotation. Right, and hoarding is a very, very Western attitude towards savings. In Asia, they call it saving, savings. right? <laughs> it's, it's a very, very big cultural difference. And then so, when you hoard several million dollars, they call it multi-generational wealth management, and then you're smart. <laughs> All right. Our next question is, this is interesting. What do you think happens to the market, the community, the general state of the space if some of the Genesis coins move? Panic. You think it's panic? I do think Tell it's panic. Tell me about that. I think it's panic at least briefly. I think that it's such an unexpected event that, I mean, I don't think it's a black swan. Maybe it's a gray swan. <laughs> a gray goose. Well, I'll Me. tell you the most catastrophic thing is the average coin agent. The Bitcoin network will go down. Yeah, that's true. Could be scary. I mean, if the if the early coins move, you know, the immediate and first question will be why did they move? And there's a number of possible explanations, and not all of them are Satoshi is back or the Tulip Trust actually existed. Um, so the one reason is that, right? So someone has the keys, and it, presumably, if they have the keys to one UTXO, they probably have the keys to all of them, which is a bit of a leap, but it's a natural reaction. But that's not the only reason why it might move. 
Another reason it might move is an undiscovered vulnerability in some part of the scripting, some edge case, some form of collision that we didn't know, something like that. A third reason why it didn't move is this is the canary of the first viable multi-bit quantum computer that is now uh, cracking ECDSA. So, uh, so, and immediately, all three of these things will go into speculation. There's a bug in Bitcoin, Satoshi's alive, and a quantum computer exists, probably run by Satoshi. And what, what would I happen, I think, panic. most immediately is all chaos is used to grab power or to get temporary solutions that you know are permanent. Because Caesar's only, you know, emperor for a day, right? Only dictator for a day, and that day lasted forever. So I remember the greatest moment of FUD chaos was when Gavin Andreessen said, hey, I think this dude is Satoshi. And what immediately happened is Bitcoin Core said, as a temporary measure, Gavin said that he would give repo access to Satoshi. Since Gavin believes this dude is Satoshi, we just need to temporarily revoke Gavin's commit access and ability to add other people until this determination happens or not. Three days before that, I hung out with some of the court devs who said, we're just waiting for a good excuse to remove Gavin. Uh, so I think that if Satoshi or somebody moves a bunch of Bitcoin, they're going to get to catastrophically play out all three of those scenarios and say, we need to take action now. We need to do this and Hard this forward. and this. There's, guys, we only have three days if there's, a, if there's a qubit processor out there to do this, this, and this. And then a bunch of political infighting bullshit that they're pretending they're not the Vatican is also going to get hodgepodged into that. And there's going to be a lot of political things. And an a lot omnibus of bill? There will be an omnibus bill. The Bitcoin Patriot Act. Yes. And, and it'll, the, it'll, it, what's going to happen is there'll be a lot of politics and a lot of, of temporary measure, ex, uh, emergency measures that they'll get supermajority consensus, and it'll all happen in a day or two. And they won't get supermajority consensus. I think you're a bit pessimistic about the resilience and cynicism of Bitcoin users. Um, so my approach would... Well, I mean, I want to be wrong, but the only way to make sure that we're wrong is if people believe that it's going to happen because they're the check and balance on it not happening. All right, well, I'll just go out on Twitter and do my usual thing where I'll go, hey, everyone, just relax. It's going to be fine. Uh, that usually work? that works, <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> I mean, that's basically... <laughs> I've done it a few times. It usually works. So uh, I'll just play that role. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I have kind of an optimistic view of what if, right. if this happened. Like, it would, yeah, it would generate a lot of bud, right? Volatility, but, temporarily. And volatility and chaos, but it also is a lot of publicity and a lot of attention for Bitcoin. And that's happened in the past, and overall, in the long term, it's been good. Guys, Buy guys, the dip. Guys, you didn't say where it would move. What if a million Genesis coins move into a lightning channel? <gasps> <laughs> what if it all goes on to shapeshift it's and gets swapped for a ripple? <laughs> <laughs> I think one positive thing about it is that it would be removing one of the, one of the things that's still hanging over Bitcoin as a known unknown and a known risk that it could happen. It's a disruption we know could be in the future, might never actually see it happen. But the fact that it's there, if it were realized, either positively or negatively, it would at least be incorporated into the price, it would at least be incorporated into the market, and we'd be able to move past it. My favorite solution would be a 20K size transaction that moves all of the Genesis block to a known burn address. And I'd be like, yeah, mine it. <laughs> One of the issues with public and anonymous systems is that one entity could ask almost all the questions. Just saying. This is our most popular comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, if that's happening, we're not aware. So, well, because <laughs> a lot of these questions are anonymous. You say it's one entity, but we all know it's the Illuminati. Oh, yeah. 
course. <laughs> all right. Uh, by the way, if you've forgotten, uh, all of those who had their questions answered on the honor system, you make your way over there, you pick up your prize, and good job. Yep, that's MK in the back, pink hat. Go see her, please. Yes, all right. So we're at 9 o'clock. Adam? Well, so do you want to keep going? You guys I, want to keep yeah, going? Yeah, we have more yeah, questions. I keep going. They're okay. all here. That's fine. Okay. It's going to be a long episode. So here's a question about the conference. Andreas, maybe you could take this one. Uh-oh. Out, <laughs> out of all the places you could have hosted BTC 2019, why Colorado? Oh, that, that's a good question. Uh, it has to do with a number of convenient factors, none of which is uh, you know, particularly connected to this place. So um, a great uh, airport, very uh, convenient location in the United States, easy to get to from most places in uh, North America. Uh, Actually, I really personally like uh, the culture of this city. Uh, it's, a, it's a booming city. And it's not a particularly expensive place to do uh, a conference like this, right? Like, we, we're not going to go do it in, in New York and have to sell out to all of the sponsors in order to do a shill fest. And then have to go to New York. Consensual. Adam's glad about that. Yeah, I don't want to go We all are. Oh, who wants Except to do Jonathan, that? Jonathan, he lives there. <laughs> In San Francisco, every one of those tacos would be $250, so. <laughs> You're gonna need your deflationary money to buy that. I, I would say a fundamental difference between Adam and I is I like to be surrounded by more people than ducks. That is fair. <laughs> <laughs> For those who, who don't know the deep cut of the last 400 episodes of Bitcoin, Adam is a duck farmer. Adam was a duck farmer. Was Adam's a, not duck, a duck, duck farmer anymore, but we had 100 ducks at one point. Muscovy <laughs> ducks, this beautiful thing. Quack. Quack. <laughs> Do you think Bitcoin will be able to shift from block rewards to transaction fees to maintain security as the block reward approaches zero? Well, it shifted every single day in the last 10 years from block rewards to transaction fees. I don't see why that wouldn't happen. This is one of the fundamental misunderstandings and dynamics of mining for most people, which is the idea that something suddenly happens sometime in an undescribed future, either uh, it, at the next halving or in 2141 and suddenly everything switches. The truth is, on a daily basis, every single miner in the industry looks at six or seven different factors. The efficiency of their mining equipment, the price of electricity in their local uh, fiat, the supply, the cost of their operation system, uh, the current price of uh, Bitcoin in fiat, uh, the, the reward that's available as a block subsidy, and the average amount of fees they can get, the relative proportion of hashing power. And they decide, based on all of these factors, do I leave this specific machine on at its current efficiency, or do I turn it off? That happens every single day. Do I point it to another coin? Right? Or do I point it to another coin? That happens every single day, and every single day that that decision continues, it's rebalancing all of these dynamic factors. So the shift between block subsidy and fees happened every single day since January 3rd, 2009, and it continues to happen today. So in short, yes, it will be able yeah, to It's adjust. happening, yeah. The, the shift is happening, and, uh, and uh, it happens shift one happens. way, but it's happening the other way. Like, sometimes... Uh, the capacity of the blockchain, the number of transactions that are in there, the value of the fees mean that it, it really attracts miners because there's a lot of fees to, to take. Other times, the fees decrease, the number of transactions decreases, so they're now more reliant on block subsidy, and then it swings back and forth and back and forth. And it's going to oscillate in that way all the way to 2141. What is everybody's view on rootstock 
potentially bringing a smart contract layer to Bitcoin. Everybody familiar with Rootstock up here? Yeah, Rootstock no. is a L2. That's is it an L2 or it's a sidechain? It's a, side it's a, side a federated sidechain. It's federated sidechain. Well, it's a drive chain, which is a variation of a sidechain invented by uh, Paul Stork, Sergio Lerner. Huh? No? Drive chain? Drive chain's Paul Stork. Oh, Paul Stork. Yes, you're yeah. right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh dear, misattribution. Sorry, <laughs> <It's> Paul. <okay. laughs> um, uh, so I'm sorry. What was the actual question again? Oh, what are what are people's thoughts on Rootstock potentially bringing a smart contract layer to Bitcoin? So I'm. Uh, my opinion about smart contracts really hasn't actually changed over the last couple of years. Um, I'm still terrified of them, and I think that they're just as terrifying on Bitcoin as they are on really anything else. And I think that there will be a point at which we will really know how to do it, but I don't know when that'll be. <laughs> and I'm not sure that putting it onto Bitcoin solves any of the fundamental problems that are just inherently scary about building complex things with smart contracts. So I don't think Rootstock is putting smart contracts on Bitcoin. Uh, Rootstock is allowing you to use Bitcoin to pay for smart contracts on the Rootstock drive chain, which you could theoretically do by shifting money into Ethereum. In fact, recently I saw someone who had built a gateway that allowed you to make a lightning payment that terminated in an Ethereum contract. So there's many ways to bridge different blockchains together. Quite honestly, I don't think we should be doing smart contracts on Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't do smart contracts, and it doesn't do smart contracts because it does security. And so that's not a trade-off I think is worth doing. It's much better to leave that to, an, to a chain that has a, a, a much more experimental culture, can take bigger risks. And as to whether we can do smart contracts, that's not a binary question. It's a question of value. So, can we do smart contracts that can keep a million dollars secure? Yes. Ten? Maybe. A hundred? No. The DAO approved that. Then, how about now? DAI is doing more. So, maybe, yes. So, it's basically a moving front. As the, the maturity of the smart contract uh, ecosystem expands, we can do bigger and bigger and bigger stakes, no pun intended, uh, within uh, the smart contract ecosystem. And every now and then, there's going to be a fairly catastrophic failure that's going to cause a regression in the amount of money that's put in them. But essentially, it's growing, right? We're proving this every day. And it's the same thing with Bitcoin. The way you measure security in a smart contract or you measure security in a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is how secure is Bitcoin? X billion dollars. That's the stake that is sitting on it right now, unhacked so far. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another Sponsored Minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrency. Hey Paul. Hey Adam. Happy to announce today another great way to make crypto usable and spendable in the real world. A lot of people are familiar with crypto debit cards that they have to purchase and top up with Bitcoin, Ethereum, or other cryptos in order to be able to spend using a Visa or MasterCard debit card. Well, today now people can use Edge to actually top up existing credit cards that they already have with their current balance in crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and many other cryptos. And this gives them all of the benefits that their credit card already gives them, whether it be points or miles programs, cash back, and not have to carry and purchase and hold another card on their name. It's available today in Europe, and we'll be coming to the US and a few other countries in a few months. So definitely excited to have people give it a try and send us their feedback. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks, Paul.
Thanks, Adam. So we got a couple more questions. How do we disrupt capitalism as we know it to undermine the formation of monopolies in cryptocurrency economies? So I, I think that um, the thing that I was most excited by is not the end product, but the fact that it can be done, which is that you had the government looking at AT&T and then society outcried and said, this thing is a monopoly, it is a poison, it, it needs to be broken up. And the only way that you were able to fight force was with force. And you look at Bitcoin in two or three years ago, when there were irreconcilable differences over this monopolistic single thing, the free market ability to just divest and branch was a self-imposed monopoly breaking. And so I think that there's this amazing beauty to the way that blockchains work and the way that association on what canonical state is that you're referencing, that that whatever, whatever structure gets to the point that you could even think of it as a monopoly, before it could get to that point, before it gets to the critical mass where that problem, the fa whatever structure makes that retain cohesion past the point where the different groups wanna break it apart, that because we don't have that, we're not gonna have monopolies in, in that kind of sense because the outward forces will just break it apart naturally before the inward forces can, can totalitarily keep it all together. And I, I think that it was a beautiful expression of what capitalism looks like when you get force out of the equation. Um, so I don't know if blockchains can be monopolies like AT&T, because I think there's no oppressive force keeping it cohesive to get it to the point where it can be a monopoly. Well, monopolies are relatively unnatural phenomena that arise as free market failures, right? And what we're seeing now is uh, they've been emerging at a much greater rate. But I don't think crypto disrupts uh, capitalism. Capitalism is too busy disrupting itself. And the reason it's disrupting itself is because fundamentally these types of uh, markets that have failed to deliver um, on their market function, on correct price discovery, on improvement of products, on increase of productivity, etc., are fundamentally fragile. And, and this is the real problem, is that all of the economic structures we see uh, today that that are kind of lauded as the pinnacle of capitalism are anything but they're not really free markets and as a result they're actually really fragile stru structures we saw that in 2008 the fragility was revealed for a brief moment a giant band-aid you know a couple trillion dollars was slapped on it and it's still there if anything it's gotten worse so it's not crypto that disrupts capitalism I think it's more some of these fragile structures uh, fail uh, on a small or medium or large scale and hopefully uh, as they fail we have opportunities to replace them with more robust and less fragile alternatives uh, but people have to make that choice themselves and I, I would say you know I don't want to be the uh, the thing that I hate which is like oh that's not true capitalism but the thing that I, I, I hate most about what's happening is corporatism and corporatism is the great evil. And corporatism is the thing that all capitalists must push against and try to destabilize and try to break apart. And I think the cool thing about capitalism in blockchain is that there isn't corporatism. What do and you mean when you say corporatism? So the thing is that this, this idea that some 
actor outside of the actors involved can say, you, I indemnify you personally of the consequences of anything that's going on or your responsibility or, oh, I'm going to bail you out or all of those like, hey, I'm going to give you the freebie button. Oh, yeah, you hurt that person. Well, guess what? They don't get to do anything back to you or they, you have no liability against them for that. And, and I think it's artificial personhood at a scale of detached from consequences of your actions that creates sociopaths. I mean, the idea that we have slashing as a concept for corporate governance uh, wouldn't exist, <laughs> I think, in, uh, if, you, if you told Facebook, hey, Facebook put up a couple hundred million, and every time you do something we don't like, we're going to take a million dollars from you. I don't think that's a framework they could ever survive in. Uh, actually, that's how corporations work in some countries in Europe. In order to start a corporation, you have to put a security bond up, and they take it away from you. If uh, you violate certain laws, they'll just confiscate it. It's essentially a surety bond that you put up in order to start a corporation. That's not a crazy idea. That's a really normal idea, as is the idea that if you're going to claim artificial personhood, you should also get the artificial death penalty. But, but the thing that is I... Is the, a corporation, uh, if it commits a capital crime, can be forced into bankruptcy and dissolution and sold but, for parts. But I think that the thing... That, so surety bonds, I think, are extremely valuable and very important. But the thing that I think is fundamentally different between what's happening in blockchain versus what's happening in the traditional market is who gets to decide what an enforcement loss event occurs against that bond. And in blockchain, we're saying, whenever you hurt an individual, right. we're going to take your money. The government says, oh yeah, you screwed those people, whatever. You did something we didn't like, we're taking your money. And the, the actual actor who determines the damages and when that condition gets slashed can be the entire difference between corporatism right and capitalism and the thing that we're trying not to be or try to go down. The whole, like, the idea that the government gets to decide when damages occur is what, like, that whole late-stage capitalism means. That causes problem. Is. Yeah, I mean, but that's exactly if, it. When you hurt a single individual, you get money taken from you, that's what we need, and that's what Bitcoin's doing. And I think that's what keeps us from getting that crazy late-stage capitalism meme-like problem. But it's not to say you won't see it in other things. Of course you will. Human nature keep, will keep happening. I, I, I think also this, this great hope of crypto, the idea that it will solve all of our problems for the next hundred years. I've said it before and I'll say it again. One day we are going to have to come in and disrupt uh, an entrenched monopolistic sclerotic Bitcoin with something much more disruptive and interesting. And that I, actually I, leads into one of our final questions. Yeah, and I, okay. I would just like to make one point. I, I fully agree. Bitcoin won't solve all our problems for 100 years. It'll solve all of them for 136 years, and then the block reward stops, and it stops working. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we've got a couple more questions, and I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who's participating in this. Very like, much the so. questions have been great, yeah, right? Yeah, they've been awesome. Thank you so much. How about a round of for our audience. Yeah, yeah, clap for yourselves. Clap for yourselves. That's not Pat weird. Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> All right. So um, what does Bitcoin's disruption mean for the average person who's not involved in the space? How is it going to affect them? Um, mostly they're going to get weirded out by all of this stuff that's happening, but I think that's already happening to an entire generation. First they got weirded out by the internet, now they're getting weirded out by social media, and, and finally, lately, they're getting weirded out by Bitcoin because they keep hearing about it, they don't understand what it is. It's being presented as a terrifyingly scary, out-of-control, techno-cyber-utopian thing. And, you know, they can't tell the difference between that, Skynet, uh, <laughs> you know, or some kind of weird conspiracy of the Illuminati. 
Are they going to get reluctantly dragged in in an AOL moment sometime in the future? Some of them will, at least, I think. Some will. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so, you know. Um, but some will never. Uh, and that's the generational aspect of this technology. You know, we, we, we can't forget that there are currently 10-year-olds who were born in an era where Bitcoin already existed, and they never knew a world without it. Now, they probably don't understand that yet because they're 10-year-olds, but give it a couple more years. It's my hope that with successful disruption from Bitcoin, we'll see better choices for the average person and better options because once you introduce the idea of unstoppable competition, then it's hard to suppress ideas that are better because they're better. And if they're better, then they should happen. And it's not to say that they will happen, but it's to say that if you don't have the option for the people who are currently benefiting from the way things are to stop the disruptions, you're going to see a lot more disruptions. And Bitcoin and the type of technologies that we see in this space really are a key to that. And most importantly, it'll be money, but really that disruption covers almost every industry I can think of eventually. Yeah, governance. All right, our final question of the night. It's 2040. Bitcoin is mass adopted and is used globally. What will disrupt it? This is the sclerotic Bitcoin. So... <laughs> So just on this note, you know, I used to try to ask questions five years out, and, these t uh, and then I moved to two years out. And these days, it's hard to find anybody who will like, make predictions two years out, because we've been so wrong about so many things in terms of time frame. And there are general cues that we've gotten right. But for the most part, the events as they've happened have been surprises, even to us. You know, even again, talking about in the early days, we talked about Mount Gox and the dangers there probably 15 times. Uh, you know, before it actually happened. And I still had funds in Gox. Not very much, but I had a little bit. Yeah. And it was because while I was aware of the danger, I was more concerned about warning other people about it than was willing to take the risk myself. So I think I went off track there. Yeah, I think when it comes to predictions, we have to follow the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which means that if we make a prediction, we either have to make a prediction that is fixed in time uh, and vague in consequence, or fixed in consequence and vague in time. So I can tell you that Bitcoin will dominate the market absolutely 100%, but I can't tell you when. Or I can tell you that next week the price of Bitcoin will be different, but I can't tell you how much. <laughs> so it, and that's the only way to achieve predictions. If you make a prediction that is both fixed in time and fixed in outcome, you will almost certainly fail. I... I I'm kind of really confused by the whole cryptocurrency space because it's one of the few network effects that you can copy the entire user base without consequence and just build on top of. So eBay, uh, early companies like Yahoo and a bunch of other very large ones started copying the entire reputation score and user base and built their own reputation network. And, and said, here's our, here's our eBay, our, 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 our own eBay, here's Yahoo's eBay. And eBay sued them into saying, that's our proprietary data, you can't fork our user base data. And I don't, I don't know if Bitcoin will ever die in this like tautological sense, because I don't see a scenario where someone's not gonna fundamentally replace Bitcoin by honoring the current state of the network creating the entire new update, just calling it Bitcoin 2.0, and then telling all of the users, hey, I've migrated to you this new system for reasons of this value, this value, and this, just keep using this. And people just keep saying, oh, cool, I'm really glad you upgraded to Bitcoin 2.0. Um, so I don't know if Bitcoin can die in the same way that uh, four or five years ago, I went to someone at Ethereum, and they said, Ethereum's the future. And I said, look, five years from now, 
I think Ethereum might work, but I also think if it is working, not a single line of code that exists right now will be a part of the thing that is working. And they go, yeah, so Ethereum's going to work. You agree with me? And I was like, but you, you understand that that statement is exactly the same as saying it's not going to work. It's, it's tautological, exactly. The, the idea is Bitcoin will be disrupted by Bitcoin because whatever is able to disrupt Bitcoin, by definition, will then be renamed into Bitcoin. Uh, and that has happened repeatedly through history. The most uh, recent example, which I think is really uh, close to that, is Ethernet. Right from my era of the internet days, we're using Ethernet here at this uh, conference. But the Ethernet we're using here, the commonality it has with the Ethernet of 1985 or 1987 or whenever it was launched, uh, is just the name. Everything else almost has changed. So. Um, you know, th those are the, the kind of transitions you have when essentially the, the eternal thing is the brand, the awareness, and the culture that carried it into the future, and you replace all of the technology underneath. If you take a, 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 a car and through maintenance you gradually change every component until nothing is left from the original car, not a single screw, is it still the same car? It's not, uh, but it is the same pattern. Right, and, and in something like Bitcoin, the pattern is a more of a social pattern, uh, and it's more of a brand pattern than it is any specific technology. It might be a set of principles, it might be a monetary policy, um, but nothing underneath needs to be the same. All of that should be black box. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Jonathan Mohan, Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz with light editing by Adam B. Levine. Transcribed highlights for this episode are provided in the show notes in partnership with Professor Meow on Twitter. Thanks again for that. Any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time.